Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm so excited. It has been awful weather, terrible, bitter cold, but it hasn't stopped the creative process. I've been not only uh, working on all fronts, my on my memory book, on art, for the big exhibition coming up very soon in Seattle, the solo show at the Center on Contemporary Art, but more music. And in addition to uh, mainly all, well, exclusively really acoustic percussion stuff, where I've uh, broken free of the sort of typical MIDI synthesizer world is actually DY eyeing my own synthesizer mm. and i think this is so crystal radio going back to an earlier you know idea that we put forward of you know mess around get off sort of the grid of mainstream off-the-shelf products start weirdly customizing things and calling upon some specialists in other fields of endeavor. You know how Robert Erwin, that we uh, devoted some time to in our book club, was very interested in car culture and the East LA uh, sort of light industrial artisanal geniuses behind car culture. And he would get materials and ideas from them. I'm doing the same thing. There's a world of people who don't call themselves artists. And it, I think we have some of those people in our listenership who are really, really deeply talented, deeply knowledgeable in, in some very cool practical things. And whether it's in the visual tactile arts of uh, like, I've got Corvette stingray paint, you know, that, through a friend and, you know, people who know how to weld and know really some interesting stuff about material science. Well, I think the same thing can be said about um, in the music realm, you know, people who uh, it's where some of the good STEM tech people who didn't want to, you know, work for Silicon Valley, they got into some, their, their strange garage shit, all of their own. And I'm so excited. And I think, there's some really cool things for you and Gus to explore that because a lot of it is really aimed at, at, at kids getting, you know, started, you know, in mm -hmm, music. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's such a beautiful thing of, of building and evolving. Cause once you get a taste of it, you just think, Oh my God, what if I tried this, you know? And so it, it, some of the stuff I've been doing is, is, is building on the theremin idea. And I have more to say, I've really, I have a Moog theremin. I've really gotten into it now. It takes some doing. So you can't just, you know, jump into any of these things. And even if you're constructing something yourself, it's like a novel, you know, it's like anything you, you make. Uh you can't necessarily feel like, well, I'm totally under control here with this, you know, and that's the whole point, the joy of surprise, the release from having to be the captain of the project, you know, that's where I've been at. Excellent. 
We had some in Oklahoma lock. Uh, well, we had some shitty weather that came out of nowhere. We had a, a line of storms that reached from mid Kansas to the northern tip of Texas. So if you imagine a kind of uh, just dry erase board with an eraser that just goes across the whole state or a, a screen printer, right? You know how a screen printer pushes that mechanism along? Yeah. Uh, it came out of nowhere. It became very intense and it produced multiple tornadoes, one of which was a half mile wide and went for uh, about 15 miles before it gave up. It very possibly destroyed uh, my storage unit. I, when I saw the position of the tornado, because, you know, uh, Oklahoma tradition is to turn on the news when, uh, when tornadoes happen and watch it like it's football. Because you're watching the the weatherman and he's telling you, you know, okay, so this is the way the winds are going and this is how they're increasing and you got to watch for spin-ups here. And, and you watch it because you're hoping like, okay, don't go towards my house. And <clears throat> when they brought up the tornado that touched down, they had this great graph of it, this great image of it where the, the circle of, of the tornado was here. And then they had the debris field from this half mile wide tornado. And they said, well, yeah, it touched down about highway nine and, and 36th street. And I was like, oh shit. That's exactly where my storage unit is. <laughs> and two days after the tornado, I got an email from my storage company saying, it's too dangerous to come down here right now with all, <laughs> with all the debris. <laughs> But we'll get back to you very soon. And I said, fuck. So, so you don't know be, at this time. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, one fingers way or the other. crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. There's, I mean, you know, if it was lost, uh, I'll make a claim. And it's all old stuff, heirlooms, comic books, video games from my youth. But uh, oh, nothing, you, not, nothing vital. Curiosities. You don't want to lose it. But... Certainly don't, but if it did happen, I would also, uh, I would be able to to move on from it. Much better that than my house. I'm a little surprised we haven't. This is, and I'm, 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 I know this will sound weird to say I'm disappointed, but uh, I've, I've always been, you know, fascinated by tornadoes, and they figure prominently into in my personal mythology. They're mentioned yes. in Gainesville and Reverend America. I was really thinking, given the craziness of the weather, that we might have some tornado sacrifices, mm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, as a way maybe of getting rid of some old relatives or, or <laughs> maybe more of a community, you know, kind of a version of cancel culture, but done with great ceremony and mm -hmm. sort of reverence for these amazing uh, natural phenomenon of such force. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I could see that. I know that the Kiowa do a a ritual in which they throw a tomahawk into the ground to split the tornado in half, and that often requires standing in its path to do so. And the the weird part is that that seems to work. But um, I could also see that. 
I could definitely, the one thing that I learned that was interesting because I've lived in Oklahoma most of my life. I've heard hundreds of tornado sirens at this point, but there are, I learned this time because of how close it got that there were, that there are two pitches to the tornado siren. So we had the initial one that was at a kind of lower pitch, normal, the kind of thing you hear when they're testing it out. And then when it was close, it went up in pitch, became much more frantic. And I've never heard that before. Is the siren moving? Is it a Doppler effect because where the siren is moving relative to you? Or is it because the siren is changing in intensity because the tornado is approaching? It's the latter. It's the latter. Yeah. Yeah. The siren stays in place and we hear it every Saturday at noon. They test it. Um, But I had told Rios, I was like, does that sound higher to you? Is that higher in pitch? And she said, yeah, I think so. And it was because, you know, danger was, was close. It was the initial warning, which is to get inside, set up your shelter, whatever. But I discovered that there's another pitch that means there is something on the ground and it's close. Uh, you know, I've got to investigate that because uh, sirens interest me tremendously. But mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think that um, that the sonic magic capabilities uh, that exist now, that we could actually take sirens that are, you know, very, you know, practically uh, signals of anxiety and and mm-hmm. warning and urgency mm-hmm. and danger and reconfigure them sonically so that they invert to uh, states of uh, creating states of calm, focus, Mm -hmm. coherence. And I, you know, it's what's interesting about this theory, and I'm just coming out with it because I'm so excited about sonic magic. Uh, The person who can really explain the the distinction in the relationships between sound, noise, and music is a person who could do anything. You know, if you can really articulate that without killing that idea, that's someone I... I definitely want to meet, but the idea of the sirens, it's not anything to do with tempo Mm -hmm. because the tempo is kind of, well, non-existent. It's just, it's a drone. So what's happened, what, what an inversion would be is some sort of pitch. Yeah. It's uh, a pitch shift. Yeah. Yeah. And you could, you could maybe do something with that that uh well if you pitch shifted it low enough wouldn't that sound something like a whale song which is very calming and i don't know if you've ever turned on a youtube video of uh, meditative whale songs to sleep to they'll put you out man oh listen get a hold of the paul winter consort group uh they did a lot of recording in the 80s the same time there was a group called Oregon and Ralph Towner they were kind of really serious trained jazz and classical musicians who went environmental and the Paul Winter consort really recorded some beautiful whale sounds it's so rich and god it makes you really want to like I don't know, like an oboe or a bassoon or a didgeridoo or 
some other worldly instrument. Um, I've tried to, I've, 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 uh, I, I improvised my own didgeridoo, which I can't really play continuously because I don't have the circular breathing down, but the sound is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that so, idea. So for today, do you have a band? I and do. An aphorism. Okay. Um, well, my I actually was in a band. I was in two bands at one point, which were just completely drug-addled foolishness, really. Uh, but one was called the Five Regular Solids. And I think that is the origin of some of these deconstructionist sort of uh, archaic versions of craft work that you've said that I've been kind of interested in. Uh, the other one was more along, uh, and I know nothing really about psychobilly, except I like it. Uh, it was the Texas Cretaceous Bivalves. And I just rethought of them because of you're tipping me off to Orville Peck, who I mm-hmm. really dig. Um, I, I, I don't, I think he's, I'm surprised he hasn't been found by David Lynch. You know, mm, he, would, he is kind he, of a David Lynch character, isn't he? He's sort yeah. of like, uh, he's kind of a more interesting version of Lynch's albino cowboy from Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And, and I think more, I mean, I like Chris Isaac, uh, who mm-hmm. has been as an actor and, a. I think he's really quite a good, uh, good musician he's a cool dude i met him in san francisco once he was really funny and just easy he came out to australia a lot he was touring constantly for years but i yeah i think orville peck would would be more like the uh and the albino lynch has a lot to say about that dude he's a friend he's a personal friend uh yeah 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 that's i love that guy he he's one of the best parts of that i'm only gonna tell you this once so listen close yeah (laughs) kind of like a like a really sort of weird version of woody harrelson woody harrelson is so interesting i recently went on a podcast to talk about no country for old men the novel and the film adaptation which featured woody harrelson in the role of wells the yeah the the hitman who's been sent after anton chigur And what's so fascinating about that is that Harrelson's father was a hitman for the Mexican cartels. Wait a minute. Wasn't wasn't there something to do with JFK? And JFK, you're absolutely right. He was also involved with the JFK assassination. So he was a CIA guy who, in, in the way, as is the way of these 1960s CIA agents, he had... He pinged all over the place. So he was pulling hits for everybody. And how hilarious now that he has Woody Harrelson, who I have a lot of time for as an actor. And apparently, according to his recent Saturday Night Live monologue, as a person, too, I feel yeah. like we'd get along. <laughs> I mean, Woody yeah, Harrelson would be Yeah, I buddies. wondered about that. I, I yeah. thought you might get around to mentioning that. Well, I think that monologue is worth uh coming back to but the the father wasn't he i seem to remember there were three strange men kind of like out of a david lynch mm-hmm, wood, mm-hmm. woodsman or sort mm-hmm. of hobos who were caught 
in Dallas on mm-hmm. the on the day on you know yep. in, when JFK was shot. Is that right? That is right. And I think that so I've been to the JFK Museum in Dallas. Have you ever been? It's a great yeah, museum. I, 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 yeah, I, I um it was oh, it was a while. It was back in the early 80s. The museum has to do this delicate balance where it wants to present the conspiracies to you, but not go too far. So I went through it pretty thoroughly. And I didn't find any mention of the homeless people. But your memory is correct. Those three men were reported to be there. Yeah. Who were they? Well, Woody Harrelson's dad, I think, was one of them. And I think that's yeah, worth, that's my point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's worth you know. It just, but all this is the strange thing about uh, popular culture now. And we should this, become friends with Woody Harrelson the way that you were with Dennis Hopper. We should uh, we should become his buddy and <laughs> have him tell us about his dad. <laughs> well, you know, I think that Woody. I, I mean, my my just my impression of him. Um, well, I did see him, and he was in the same bar that uh, a publisher, my publisher agent, and a couple of other people were at at these um, in New Orleans when there was the big independent book convention thing on. And Woody was down there shooting a movie, and he was high. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, he likes to I party, bro. He still I mean, likes to party. He was really, really. He hot. was part. He was partying while he was on Saturday yeah. Night Live. I like which how he's is of course fatty. Yeah, which is of course what the liberal media focuses on with his monologue. It was oh, he seemed out of it. It's like yeah, it's Woody Harrelson, bro. He was duh, duh. But well, let's not focus on what he was actually talking about. Let's focus on how bizarre and erratic he was acting. Um, I love they it when they like did that. They didn't like that. But you know who did like that? Who? Me. Oh, Me. yes. Well, I was excited. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I was pleased that one of the people who really didn't like it was Stephen Colbert who, of course, really didn't like Jon Stewart on his show. Right. And yeah. I think Stephen Colbert is, is probably one of the biggest disappointments. And Absolutely. I, I grew up watching him. I grew yeah. up watching him. And I thought I thought his, his character on The Daily Show was really formative for me in my leftist politics. You know, his, his ability to caricature the right wing is this sort of absurd uh, cartoon character. I thought it was a hundred. It was so brilliant. And then he when he had his show, character, he was great. Yeah, yeah. And when he had his show, he had this remarkable ability, the same as uh, other performance artists who do similar things, like uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, for example, of bringing out of his guests things that they really shouldn't be talking about because of his persona. And then he got the job with uh what is it is it cbs nbc yeah yeah. and he became the one of the worst people on tv just unashamedly a complete 
a toad. Thank you. Yeah. Toad. A, to- a toady. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So Stephen Colbert, I'm right there with you when it comes to Colbert. I just, I can't, you know, seeing your heroes turn into these awful soulless shills uh, is invertebrates. Invertebrates. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a big spineless coward is who Stephen Colbert is. So I, I didn't know that this upset him, but anything that upsets him. (laughs) Yeah. is a good, pleases me. (laughs) I hear you, man. I hear you. Okay. Well, so did I mention my band name? Mm -mm. All right. Well, you know, I do a lot of experimenting, well, with you directly, uh, but yeah. I experiment with my class. You know, I am I'm always asking questions and and I'm I I'm a I'm a compulsive researcher mm-hmm. of of people, at least. I'd like to think the larger world. So I'm floating this idea as a possible name for the emerging ensemble. It's just I'm gonna maybe keep you know doing this for a while i'm not there's nothing nothing at stake here this is just an idea it's just being floated but this is a real creature by the way psychedelic frogfish Mm. i mean if you google on that pattern you will find something so beautiful and hypnotic it's one of my favorite marine creatures and i think it um it speaks to sort of the lateral ambient indie weird electronic exotica side it speaks to sort of psychogeography and mm-hmm. you know world culture world music getting into lost time and lost people and strange creatures and the nexus between science and art and it also frankly connects back to uh something i'm going to really own i'm a child not just of the atomic nuclear age and a whole lot of other weird things but the psychedelic age you know i'm an original psychedelic kid i I, my first dose and which is completely accidental i think i told you was you know at age nine yeah that was a big day for bike riding which is what <laughs> how Hoffman, you know, discovered. So psychedelic frogfish, and the first uh, album is called "The Inhabitants," and it's about the original ancient arrivers who, kind of like the Bushmen, retreated to the Kalahari. And the pygmy people retreated to the Congo because of the Bantus. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bantus Mm -hmm. were coming. So two of the coolest groups of people on the whole African continent and the most survivalist oriented of everybody go, well, we can't hang with the Bantus. We're going to (laughs) go jungle in one case and into some of the rawest, weirdest desert in the world. And I just think that's such a cool thing. Well, the ancient arrivers were faced with some sort of like threat, like unto the Bantus. And they retreated into uncharted realms within the human brain and the the human psyche. And they're 
they're within us and survive on that level. And our dreams are kind of uh, analogous to heavy internet usage between these uh, inhabitants. So that might be true. I think it is true. <laughs> and I have, uh, I can send you uh, the first piece of music. You don't, we don't have to include this at the end, but it's not that long. And it does feature one of uh, my own uh, constructed instruments. So anyway, psychedelic frogfish and the inhabitants. It's kind of like uh, a giant sprawling, uh, would it be, well, kind of like a Hindu mythology version of Jungian, you know, the collective unconsciousness, but blown out to such an amazing level, you know? I'm into it into it okay and here's my aphorism which is um this really strike struck me this is a this is a simple one but i think we we really need to, re to revisit it it's easy to forget that photography video and film are all types of optical illusions Mm -hmm. you know yes. you're so used to seeing you know i it really hits me sometimes it really hits me and it concerns me about um younger people like my gen z students who are so screen directed and therefore two-dimensional and it's very interesting when a couple of them really got onto talking about how that really distorts perspective we've been talking about what happens when you see something you know photographs of something famous and then you see the thing for real mm -hmm. how do you kind of reclaim that novelty in terence mckenna's terms and they're on to that problem they're they're definitely on to that problem but they really are a lot of well half of them are and then the other half are really fixed in this two-dimensional plane and not seeing it as something that needs to be decoded, you know? Mm -hmm. And one, I love this one gal. She's so practical. You dig her. And she goes, well, haven't you ever watched a dog watch TV? You know? And that was it. That was, that was the to mention a figure that we're sort of going to deal with a little bit later, a Glenn Murcott kind of metaphor of getting right down to it, something, you know, that's a very complex idea that, you know, I was talking about encoded two-dimensional spaces and having to, you know, you know, have you ever watched a dog watch TV? Like, do they, you know, and that was, I think, very helpful. Um, that's extremely brilliant to take something like social media use or phone use or whatever and just imagine an animal doing it we it, we've got to get 
out of these very rigid human centric frames, which have all been predetermined now and super controlled by things like social media and the internet. So of course we see, it's like looking in a mirror. We see exactly what we expect to see. If we break out of that and start looking and really thinking about how animals, the, the few animals that we have any real direct you know, contact with, uh, I mean, some people have much more, you know, uh, working people only, you know, 100 years ago. Think about, I mean, it's just, we've lost a lot of that. But but child perspectives, as in toddler perspectives, which you have with Gus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I wish we could really talk more to people with uh, special needs, you know, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when, like, remember Temple Grandin, who, who you know, is very autistic, but she's been a major writer and speaker. And when she has shared some of her perspectives, it's helpful. You know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. if you're all if you're neuro atypical, let's say, I think <laughs> you've got to be contributing some of that weird magic back into the normal pool the swamp of, of stuff. That's mm-hmm. my, there's, a, there's actually a moral obligation. Um, okay. Are you ready for your imaginative challenge? Cause ready. This let's go in. this kind of works in. Okay. You're, you're as always, but particularly this time, well, you're free to do some drawing in support. Okay. Okay. But this is, and you're free to to use your tremendous language skills to support and paint this picture because uh, it is a picture that we're going to need at the end. But the most important thing is to really think like an art director, set designer, mm-hmm. a dimensional artist who's into that with a passion. Okay. You have a budget that you don't need to worry about. But you are constructing for you, your wife and your son, a snow dome environment for yourselves, Mm -hmm. which you Mm -hmm. must inhabit for three years consecutively. You can't leave it but it, you can design it so it will be incredibly comfortable in many, many detailed ways that matter to you. It does have to look like a snow dome paperweight, though. It can't be so, uh, you know, but it has some definition to it. You know, it's probably... Think in terms of the size of a typical residential lot and house, mm-hmm. you know, quarter yeah. acre or smaller. So it's domed, you know, like Stephen King's dome, but it's more contained. And it's going to have to make you feel good for three years. Okay. You mm-hmm. can't leave the dome, but you can assume all your needs will be met. So, it would be more out of just sheer frustration and dome fever that you would want to break out because you've got everything you need there. You can specify that. So we need to have a very clear picture of this at the end of the show when you reveal your dome. 
And then because you are a writer, I thought I'd throw in just a good old fashioned twist from the Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. riff on a Twilight Zone episode. When you are able to leave your snow dome, you find that you are in a collection of snow domes and you come face to face with the collector. So a good old fashioned Twilight Zone or Henry ending at the end mm -hmm, got us mm -hmm, sort of yeah. all fit together. But we really want some beautiful set design. I want to sort of I want to write music to this about this snow dome environment that you create. So within the snow globe, there is a there's a house and a limited environment within it, or just the house. No, you get a limited environment. You like trees, maybe a garage. Mm -hmm. No, no, you get, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it can, I mean, it, this could be kind of, I mean, you could think of this in terms of, of what would your dream house right now be if you were loaded, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I mean, that could mm -hmm. be a simple starting point. But I'll totally. say no more because I don't okay. want to say anything. All right. Let's see. Let me make a note about face to face with snow globe creator. All right, cool. Got it. What would you like to talk about today? Oh, okay. I've got to share a, a, um, a new phrase, a new name I've come up with and I'll throw it out. I, 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 and just see what your interpretation is. And also I'll try to neutralize my inflection. Momentarians. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did you find this? I inside with the inhabitants when I was, I'm, I'm taking uh -huh. my own sort of medicine and going into <laughs> incredible trance creative states where I'm just, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm just being ultra productive in all media. And I think it's because I'm kind of hysterical with anger and frustration about <laughs> the world, but it's taking a positive form. But what do you mm -hmm. what do you think of the momentary? What does that mean to you? What do you think? Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe first, it's completely clear. It is pretty clear. Although yeah. I would say that maybe the direction that isn't immediately evident to a momentarian, because the the ending bit, I A N, feels apocalyptic to me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So something about the moment being consistently apocalyptic would be my my read of that. If you took that away from it, though, I feel like uh, it's a really good descriptor of people who we have to deal with every day. Exactly. Well, that was exactly my. I mean, I I didn't see it was it was possible to interpret any other way. I, I did get 
uh, someone saying, well, that means living in the moment in a kind of good way, live for mm-hmm. the moment. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it didn't hold up to scrutiny very long. It was more like right. the goldfish, you know. <laughs> and I think apocalyptic goldfish is is a great way to think of, of what we're it's dealing with. a good band name, stuff. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I mean, they just get to one end of the, the you know, the bowl and, you know, what? Uh-huh. What, what did you say? What was going on? <laughs> And it's, you know, all of the stuff about Alzheimer's and dementia and more and more of this, and then more and more of the teen mental health epidemic. And if not genuine mental health problems, and they are to me, they fall under my rubric for that, but not most people's, the the scrambled brain phenomenon, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that people... Mm -hmm. Uh, like Douglas Rushkoff and um, Nicholas Carr talking about. Um, so it really, it is, it, I, I think, I think it is a good way to think about the, mm-hmm. uh, the all embracing epidemic, so to speak, you know, the momentarians. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The mom- they- the momentarians and you can't, you can never convince them to come outside of the moment because they can't can't do it (laughs) no they can't it's like it's more than invisible at fences and Mm -hmm. it's more than uh you know like laser barriers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you know they could do some cool cat suit you know maneuvers into no no it's it's so internal that they they are projecting that as a life mission, and that is a very very strange idea. Um, you know what what people can project and with what kind of power and what kind of depth of field. I mean, how do they hold mm-hmm. those images together? You mm-hmm. know, it's. Um, I mean, I did a, a trial run just on the mountain sort of side behind me. I want to go to the ghost town of Rhyolite, which I photographed a ton. Um, and it's right on the side of the uh, highway. It has actually a kind of an interesting sculpture uh, mm-hmm. garden extension to it, which is fairly recent, done in the last 20 years. But the town is just some beautiful ruins. But I want to project images onto the these ruined buildings you know obviously at after dark with a really timed sort of thing but when you when you think about that you can that's conceptually easy to say but Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. getting not just the focusing in there but actually conceiving the images that you want to project that's very difficult to do with that resolution and clarity. And where do you want that clarity to disappear? Supposing you had an odd, a live audience for a, a kind of music event. So the images are only part mm-hmm. of it. Where mm-hmm. do you want the audience to merge into it? So all of those considerations come up, but to go back to the momentarians, they are completely unseeing of all of those levels. The moment mm-hmm. is is completely defining, mm-hmm. and uh, what what I think one of our ongoing questions um, for lost explorers has been: How new is that? You know, if this is a a, a paradigmatic way of defining our current zeitgeist, 
the momentarians, you know, that's what the zombie apocalypse really showed up mm-hmm. as the momentarians. Mm-hmm. When did we get those? Was it that terrible year of 2012, 2013 that you and I talk about? Was it much <laughs> earlier? Was it 1950? Was it the beginning of the 20th century? When did the momentarians start with? I guess we can, that's one of, that's our theme for today. The momentarians started. Twenty twelve is a really good year. It's a convenient year, as well, considering all the pre twenty twelve literature. Uh, you know, Daniel Pinchbeck, people like that, writing about the the end of the Mayan calendar and the beginning of a new world. I think that twenty twelve is good for the momentarians because so 2012 let me do some quick math 2012 we're in 2013 11 years people who were 21 would have been 10 at that point right so pre-teens in 2012 are the adults of today so when they are coming into alleged adult life is is right around that time and they would have been surrounded by phones. The iPhone was released in 2007, which would have been when they were infants, essentially. And they would have, it's the first generation, I think, to be born without a, a sense of what it's like to exist without those things. So I do think that people like you and I have a tendency to slip into momentary and thought every once in a while. We can be guilty of it, but these are the people who were born into it. Long story short, I think 2012 is a good starting point. That's interesting. We, we kind of keep circling back to that. And I, I like the rationale for that you, that you pulled out this time. You know, that's one of the things I'm, I'm really focusing on with my students who are a very sharp group, you know, relatively speaking, of once you get an angle on something is, mm-hmm. is to dig in and really, really pull it out and make it, make it more, not quantitatively, or measurable, you know, not those metaphors, but more substantially connected. And I like how you, the way you did that just now was Mm -hmm. you talked about generational and really put it down to ages of people. And I think that that's like the dog watching the TV thing. That's a, it's a very simple thing, but it really grounds something that could be amorphous and very, and therefore unnecessarily complex. And you've brought it into focus, uh, I think that's, uh, but you triggered another interesting thought that uh, I don't know why I haven't mentioned this, but um, uh, one of the p- artist sort of people I know in Australia and have stayed f- kind of friends with uh, started saving every single mobile mobile cell phone from the very first time he got one right? Mm -hmm. And never threw them out. And just keeps them in a collection. Mm. And 
he tries to he he went back to it after a year to look at it and he said it's just completely it's unaccountable the effect that has looking at that because you forget all of these things we forget how fast we've absorbed this strange yeah. pathology you know right right it, it it's really quite disturbing so some interesting things there uh i think so 2012 i wish i don't know i was gonna say i wish i'd known then but I don't know what would you do differently, you know. There that, is no way to have known where we would have ended up now. I don't think people have really and I think that the 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 job of writers in 2023, especially writers of <clears throat> at least my age and older is documenting this shift because you know I was listening to Eric Weinstein on the Joe Rogan podcast. And he talked about this incredible leap in technology from the early 20th century to the mid 20th century. So in this period of like 40 or 50 years, you know, Einstein came up with general relativity. We split the atom, uh, cars, uh, computers, all these things just boom emerged out of there. And he was comparing that to the relative stagnation in terms of physics where we're at in 2023 uh and i think he's right but i think what's missing from that is is the um i know it's unique to my life but i i would be so bold as to say it would be unique to anybody who was born around the time i was on back whatever we were missing in rapid atomic advances in technology in my era has been made up for in a cultural shift that is just i mean what else can you compare it to the cultural revolution in china maybe mao's revolution it's been that rapid and that intense i think personally um could we get you to uh, maybe put some uh, parameters or frames on this that you're referring? I mean, I think I might know, but I'm really interested in having you sort of thread your way over the rope bridge over the quicksand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, I just mean, oh, man, what do I mean? I, I know what I mean. I want to say something like culturally or morally, but what I think I really mean is perceptually. I believe that in the same way that the early 20th century saw an explosion in, you know, particle physics to the point where we began to understand the world in a different way, a similar explosion in the past, uh, 10, 11 years has occurred in our perceptions of things. And I think we're still catching up to that. A lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast have to do with the myriad absurdities that we see on the internet in a given week, right? That we send to each other. 
Yeah. And I, I think that that can be traced back to the fact that we had an atomic explosion of perceptual alteration that we still haven't gotten our balance on. It's not under our feet yet. I have certainly um, thought that myself and i've certainly like we're all confused i'm sorry to interrupt you but but this just came to me we're still all we still the grenade has gone off and we're all wandering around with our ears ringing right now yeah you know i i i really hear that i i've i've thought that and i've also know i've wanted to to believe that uh, and I think it's a it's a powerful metaphor. I think it's re, it's legitimate. It connects to, you know, in, as as really powerful metaphor should to very physical material uh, things and events. So there's there's good sense there, um, but another part of me thinks that there's a metaphor of. Well, kind of the sonic vibrations, the, I mean, there's another way to think about uh, aftershock and it's, it's just sonic decay, you know, and we, there's some, actually some interesting and sometimes quite beautiful music that is based, William Basinski, for instance, uh, but where is it, Basinski, Basinski, uh, but a, Gavin Breyer's a lot of just decaying, physically decaying tapes so that you're hearing that as a very, very, and I, that's kind of my suspicion, uh, because when I do an inventory of what sort of defines the, the momentarian uh, zeitgeist, if that's possible, uh, it's decay. I think there are some pitch changes, but you know that that I mean, with the Doppler effect and the way that that um, the waves break down, wavelengths, that you could get pitch shifts and you could get, uh, you know, signs of of some activity, but nonetheless, it's there's nothing that is qualitatively new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And maybe that does harmonize with 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 what your you know the the big explosion metaphor. Maybe they they fit together the same way. I think uh, so. I think they're two. I think that if you take Basinski's uh, disintegration loops, and you also take the metaphor of the bomb going off, those are two descriptions of sort of the same thing. Yeah. One, yeah one's the interior, and one's more. It's interior and exterior, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the interior perception of what's going on is disorientation, and the exterior reality is disintegration. So those two link together. Well, you know that makes me think of, you know, we had a start of our ongoing love of architecture and investigation of architecture, which I think connects all to this. I mean, it connects back to, uh, you know, the fate of your uh, storage thing in the tornado. Uh, It figures into what we've just been talking about in terms of 
uh, the momentarians and defining because architecture really has to do with defining space both well if you imagine this <clears throat> explosion in slow motion you know that great last scene it's a brisky point you know where the house explodes multiple times and then mm -hmm, mm -hmm, floyd's mm -hmm. song you know careful with that axe eugene is is on yeah. uh well those you know and that's of course the model of the universe isn't it that's the big bang uh astrophysicist point of view and that out of that that with on these exploded pieces of material life can form you know their islands their planets their you know whatever and they ultimately come down to houses and rooms and uh personal you know intimate space within our minds but it's all it's the idea of space and i thought i would throw this quote at you from john lautner who was a mid 20th century american architectural genius the the number one protege of frank lloyd wright uh very very famous houses mostly in los angeles and southern california uh but he says, disappearing space seems to me to be the most durable and endurable and life-giving quality in architecture. And that's from a book um, on Lautner uh, by um, Taschen uh, Publishers. And... Uh, it's a it's one of the one, another one of their great uh, architect series, but you know disappearing space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I love how you can read things like that, and and you know, and think, okay, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people wouldn't notice anything, but you noticed it. I mean, like, what mm -hmm. the hell does that mean? I wonder if it doesn't have some because I'm looking now at some Lautner buildings. And they are these kind of gargantuan flying saucer-esque designs with a lot of open space around them. And I'm wondering if disappearing space isn't contingent upon uh, very prominently sort of uh, uh, featured space, right? If, if a centralized object that you are meant to look at is then complemented by a bunch of empty space around it. I wonder if like the bigger and the more obtrusive that space is, it makes the rest of it disappear. I like um, that word obtrusive. I, I really wish he were alive to, to feel that. I think that was a very interesting uh, choice of words. Carry on with that line of thought. I feel like there's right. more there. Right, because nothing can disappear if there's nothing to disappear from. So in the context of architecture, if you wanted space to disappear, it would naturally follow that you would create a, a, a focal point of something that was so interesting to look at that it actually brought out the negative that you started to notice the space around it. One thing, <clears throat> one thing that's interesting about, because I live in a very basic home. There's nothing special about where I live. 
Uh, but if I were to think about the concept of disappearing space, nothing in my neighborhood, no single house in my neighborhood disappears. And I think that's because perhaps this is two competing architectural philosophies. Uh, uh, can you can you integrate and blend into geography uh, without losing this aspect of having space being able to disappear? That would be my question. So I would wonder if the space disappearing is contingent upon a central focal point or whether I'm missing something. Because as I'm talking to you, I'm scrolling and I see this, uh, you know, I see this saucer-like building over a, a beautiful pool. I see this, uh, I see these uh, uh, triangular patterns in a ceiling that opens onto a veranda with some uh, not very comfy, comfy, almost McDonald's looking benches looking out on uh, on the view. Uh, but I wonder if it's not, you know, if it's not that triangular patterned uh, protrusion that is by its audacity making the negative space more apparent. I think there's some really, really interesting things that you're you're talking about. I mean, absolutely, certainly the question in very physical terms of negative space mm -hmm. and focal points and figure and ground uh, and ideal viewing distance perspective versus you know the aspect of something mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. i mean there's some interesting point i i, I want to get back to because i think that's a really interesting way to interrogate some of the social slash cultural issues of today but i think that this is a good example for for anyone who wonders and we can we've come at it from many many different points of view because it's such a uh an unfortunately fertile problem it, it ripples out with all its weird fault lines uh, is the subject object dichotomy that's at the heart of certainly western civilization and that is the deepest binary we've spoken about it so many many times it it appears constantly it appears constantly but that is the way i think to think of of this really deep idea in terms of the perspective and the architectural focal point of a room. Because I think you made a very good point. You can't have space disappearing unless it is relative to something that isn't, that appears mm -hmm. fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think you left that open as to whether or not, say, a house of substance needs several of those focal points. Mm -hmm. Do they mm -hmm. move? I mean, that's a whole really interesting sub-conversation that gets down to some really great uh, and, and amazing architectural ideas that, that people who really know what they're doing have. Um, but here's a question. Let's just assume that the, the kind of focal point that you're talking about uh, is capable of um, 
having variations of itself within a particular structure. Okay. So it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be the only one. And therefore it can have either a kind of mobility, maybe, I mean, supposing it was had something to do with light entering the interior mm -hmm, that would mm -hmm. move, you know, the skylight effect, you know, it would, that would have a living kind of dynamic quality. Um, but in any case, the idea is consider our, our fixation on inclusivity today, mm -hmm, diversity mm -hmm, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about where is an example of a relatively recent new building. So either a major, uh, I'm thinking more of a major public building, okay, that genuinely really mm -hmm. is to, to welcome, or at least to not unwelcome, uh, mass numbers of people. And I'm wondering where is anything of real substance that is managing those spatial mm -hmm. issues and those psychological issues mm -hmm. and the practical mm -hmm. cultural issues that is relatively new? Can you think of anyone? No. <laughs> I I can't either. Look, I I I thought of every category. You know, major retail, uh, mm -hmm. amusement park, mm -hmm. uh, public park. Uh, you know, landscape. I kept thinking and thinking and thinking, and the more I pulled on that thread, and uh, I think that that we are living in an absolute wasteland yeah. of of public space that is genuinely inclusive and welcoming and that we can look back at some a rich mm. tradition of far more civic mindedness mm -hmm. welcome and mm -hmm. involved i mean i don't know what people are talking about today because i don't see it at all and there's plenty of room for new build, new you know right, construction, right. new design. That's not really what's going on. But I don't see that as as any. It's not a patch on Central Park or some of the great. I mean, good God, even Disneyland. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. everything is is at best an echo or a, a reboot or a bad copy. So this goes back to the degenerative sound metaphor, the explosion just falling apart. It's not like it's gaining any new coherence. I've noticed that. I think a lot of people notice that, but there's a really important note in what you just said, which is that some people are having trouble squaring the circle of all of these appeals to inclusivity while at the same time not seeing that inclusivity represented architecturally. I think that's really interesting. Mm. And I think it might be driving people nuts because I think that architecture has a subconscious effect on whoever's in a particular space. I've lived in apartment complexes that have driven me nuts. I've lived in houses that 
made me feel like I was stuck. Uh, and I wonder if part of this sudden boom of pseudo Maoist McCarthyite feelings that kids have is from growing up in McMansions. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I, uh, I'm looking at the Tyler house right now and there's just, there's so much interesting conversation going on with it, right? Because you have this, this structure that has these uh, floor to ceiling windows and they have these uh, uh, beautifully painted golden beams, right? That go up into the ceiling without any uh, trim. So there's trim along the bottom and the beams come up and there's no trim along the top. So that suggests based on the kind of white cream ceiling, a feeling of, of constant upward movement in the house, right? Um, and when you take your average uh, administrative building or what have you, which has become more and more architecturally neutered over time, like you don't even have, you don't have, you don't even have funny colors. I walked into the DMV to get my, my driver's license, a six hour process. And it is a, a Ballardian nightmare of just like cold, formless. There's no thought put in to how this building was made, right? People are bumping into each other. They're turning corners and running into folks. But I wonder if um, some of the madness that we're talking about circa 2012 couldn't be seen from this kind of the fact that everything is built now from this quick cheap utilitarian mode i mean i'm gonna say something that might sound crazy but i feel like if i were to go into a gucci store right now or a louis vuitton store there was more architectural daring in like a mid 90s burger king <laughs> <laughs> but i think you're on to something that's my point is that I, I i think you're on to something with this well i think that that you've made an important series of contributions here of the, I mean, this is a wonderful speculation. This was entirely you of, of suggesting that this, whether it be literally 2012 on, but I, we know what you're talking about. We really, I mean, you're talking about Gen Z, um, uh -huh. that the one way to think of the psychological and sociological conflicts that they experience and present to other people is that they are suffering a kind of cognitive dissonance, not seeing in the architecture the values that they would like to espouse mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that you, I mean, there are obviously other sort of contributing fact, but what if that 
this is what I took your speculation to be. What if that were the principal cause of the problem? And why, why not? Because what's more fundamental than architecture? The next stop is the ambient environment. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. 100%. That's absolutely what I mean. It's, it's, you know, and I'm right on the cusp of this because I was, uh, how old was I? Jesus, 26, 27, around 2012. So I had grown up in an environment where some of these more psychological, dare I say, occult ideas made their way into architecture. And I have witnessed the shocking and quick and brutal transition into where we live now. And I just, I just don't, I think going to Taos with my wife and staying in that, that beautiful house that we stayed in and seeing these other beautiful houses, it was like a revelation to me because I was like, oh, I didn't, I don't see this normally. I don't look at houses normally. I have books on my shelf over there of architecture. And I look at them as though they're pieces of you know, antiquarian art, you know, mm-hmm. of, oh, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the world looked like this? Because here where I live, buildings don't do that. They don't look like that. Yeah. And, and I, and I just, and I wonder if <sighs> I'm reticent to, to say whether it's in, whether there's like a T loss, whether there's an intentional drive to make it this way. But there is definitely a causative link between the way, you know, I brought up a Burger King, the way even fast food looks, the way the spaces that people go into looks versus, you know, kind of where we are now. I mean, think about the mall, a mall versus a strip mall. It's even got the word strip in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. Like like we've seen the strip mauling of all architecture. A new restaurant opens up. We had one open up down the street. It's a Hawaiian joint. I want to try it. I love Hawaiian food. But it's in another one of these there's nothing to distinguish it from anything around and how audacious would it be in the middle of small town America if they had made this this building instead of a building They'd made it a, a a series of, you know, huts with tiki torches everywhere, and you had to navigate the the huts. No, it looks the same as the burger joint, as the hot dog place, as every other place. It's a flattening, is what we're talking about. It's a flattening, and how does that not translate into a flattening of your mental landscape? You can't think outside the box. Not if you're talking about endless box stores. Yeah, I mean, you can't maybe, think outside the box if you're always in these fucking boxes, man. Yeah. You made me think of Bullhead City, Arizona. Now, this is on the, the great name for a city. Uh, look, it's I once wandered around this closed down carnival some great photos uh 
it's quite a weird little, but it could be beautiful. It's right on the Colorado River, but it has become just, it's a box store strip mall extravaganza. Yeah. And it really, really is heavy. But I, I got a couple of questions for you because I think you touched on a few things that are so important. One is a perception and a kind of, we've been talking about explosions. This is a kind of an explosion that I think some people have and it, it opens up so many doors of creativity and possible thought. But you hinted at the idea of, well, the question, why do things look the way they are? Mm-hmm. Way they do? Why? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a materials question often. What are they made out of? Plastic, you know, has a look and a psychology to it. And it only became possible when plastics became possible. So mm-hmm. there's a, there was a time frame, historical sort of machinery moving. Endless numbers of design decisions, you know? And you start, that ripples out in just all these waves of decisions based on a few basic principles, usually resources, cost, time, um, but also intent, Mm-hmm. No, and you can walk around and this is what gets everyone the first time they go to europe for, and every american pardon me every american and the brits are fine with this they there's an entirely different sense of history mm-hmm. they they look around and then and it's unavoidable that you think well even if there's ruins and let's face it there have been a few world wars you know some big action those people built shit to last. Mm-hmm. And if you had to have one simplistic, and I admit it's simplistic, generalization to make about the building construction, but therefore also the architecture of our times. And we've already said the effect that that has psychologically on culture. I think there's a, there's, there's a kind of nihilism in it. There's not an expectation of endurance, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's built to be knocked down, imploded, or maybe we're just not going to survive as a species, you know. Mm. That's so interesting because, <laughs> unfortunately, I do agree with you. There is a real nihilism in the architecture that you see around, um, which is so wildly juxtaposed with like so one of my favorite i mean not just architectural marvels or works of art is uh the sagrada familia right right and uh i could just read about the sagrada familia forever and apparently it might be done in about 12 years might be covid pushed it back another one of covid's many crimes but uh I became fascinated with the idea that this this building project has gone on for centuries. People have been born, lived, and died working on this thing, knowing that they would never see its end. And what a different mental framework for your projects than... Look, this place just has to get bodies inside, asses in seats. They got to buy cheeseburgers and then we can fucking, we can knock it down. 
if we need to. Right. So I think you're dead on, man. I think, I think there's a, there's a nihilism to the, to the architecture that we see. It's like, just make sure it's good enough for about 10, 15 years. Yeah. You know, I think once you see it clear as clearly as you've just expressed that it's unavoidable and it's so utilitarian in in its explanatory power, it Mm -hmm. really covers a lot of ground and it covers an enormous amount of ground in terms of this just, just anxiety generating turbine of cognitive dissonance between Mm -hmm. The, mm-hmm. you know, the so-called values of, of, of concern about the environment and think, you know, generationally forward into the future, whether that be, you know, going into space and as if we're not mm-hmm. in space already, mm-hmm. but colonizing other planets, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like saying, like, I no longer, like, I no longer have a heuristic for my architecture, right? Like, it's it's just... The heuristic is like what gets me through the day. It's sort of a meta heuristic in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what's kind of uh, and and so we're momentarians within these spaces that are ill-designed and to some extent intentionally designed not to survive. And yet the the social milieu demands that we talk at least about uh, environmental protection and a great Mm. number of values that Mm. really Mm -hmm. there isn't a coherent thing about what we're looking at, you know, forward in any great optimistic way. I think the last time we had that, and the only people who have that are the real tech heads who want to upload and go super robotic and then AI. And, you know, you've got to love that shit as a religion to be excited about that over all the robot apocalypses and zombie, you know, shootouts and other stuff that have, you know, litter the, mm-hmm. the collective unconsciousness. So, yeah, it, it's... Man, you just made such an interesting connection too between the climate and architecture. And I wonder if that's not a a lateral thinking solve for what's going on right now. Instead of thinking about the nuts and bolts, what's your carbon footprint? How much energy are you putting out? What is what is the what are the carbon emissions of XYZ thing? If you were to take a slight right turn and just be like, what are the buildings that people are living in? And I don't mean from an energy saving standpoint. I don't mean, do they have solar panels or do they use recycled plastics or, you know, what's the water system look like? I mean, architecturally, right? How can you expect people to, to give a shit about something as eternal as our environment if our buildings are designed to last 30 years right That's the build the the the, the yeah. buildings are just a the buildings are a metaphor for the environment so if you don't make them to last then how do you expect people to give a shit about the environment 
And no one can say that we're integrating more effectively into the environment because there are painfully few examples of that on any scale. But you can clearly say, and we find this out every season of, and it's happening now across the year almost, of, of giant forest fires and wildfires. Well, they're not really forest fires because they're in the suburbs. They're suburb fires, man. Like, as Dennis Hopper would say, you know, it's like, God, how, you know, so there's nothing really working in terms of our architecture. And I think there are some analogs. You mentioned the car problem last episode. And, you know, really, I mean, you walk around and nobody gets a hard on over today's cars. You know, no one gets wet. No one gets excited. No one gets revved up as we used to. The, no, from a design point of view, the designs are just, they're so boring, it's tragic. And, and so mm -hmm. we have a design problem where we are designing for the momentarian mindset mm -hmm. while mouthing mm -hmm. some awareness of a cosmic destiny. And I just wonder if, how long that can go on would are the momentarians are they insulated against any kind of revelation or epiphany because they are momentarians and they're just endlessly trapped in the goldfish cycle could they I think they'll get to a point where some might have some dim awareness of cognitive dissonance has reached uh, a terminal stage well, this might be the utility of nostalgia, right? I've seen the proliferation of, of uh, Instagram accounts about abandoned malls and things of the past. And if there's one thing that the momentarian could utilize to kind of see towards the future, because the, the experience of nostalgia is predicated on the idea that one day the world that you are living in will be the subject of nostalgia right Correct. so if you are able Very to see abandoned malls and abandoned burger kings <laughs> stuff that we would think was silly but still has relevance in in my estimation i think that uh the way to snap people out of these things is the same way that you would snap them out of it i went to uh marseille on a book tour and there was a McDonald's in an old church and that church had been there since the 11th century. And they had made a little drive-through. Well, it wasn't drive-through because there was no road. It was a walk-through McDonald's. I'd never seen it before or since, but there it was. Uh, and I, when I saw that initially, I thought, Oh my God, how awful that is to like profane this, this structure with this McDonald's. But this conversation is making me reevaluate that in the sense that no, it's it's introducing a McDonald's within a context. The momentarian has no context for anything. It's a contextless being that is consistently like a newborn. Everything it sees is new. And one of the uh, 
flip sides, the downsides to everything constantly being new is everything is also disposable. Everything's also almost dead. So a sense of history is what the momentarian needs. It needs nostalgia. It needs to be inundated with, uh, you know, confrontations with VHS recorders and camcorders and Walkmen and, you know, uh, bikes with bicycle cards in their spokes, right? Like all these things from its recent past, very recent in human very history, recent. Uh, to realize like you are a part of a continuum. The momentarian in their name is one that is divorced from past and therefore divorced from future. So what we're saying is like, buildings and culture has to become a conversation again. And this goes back to things that we've talked about on Lost Explorers for 140 episodes. Like you have to engage with it. You can't tear down the statues. You can't change raw doll books. You can't whitewash everything into an easily disposable uh, packet of ketchup. These kids are used to, to, to living within. You have to have a sense of where you came from if you want to know where you're going and the architecture has to do that too you can't build buildings with the intent that they are going to be torn down when there is another more uh, utilitarian use for that space it has to be a part of a continuum like i didn't love oklahoma until i started reading about the indians who lived here you see what I'm saying? Like there's yeah, a, oh yeah. There's a, like once you get a sense of history, you're like, oh yeah, fuck yeah. This is my space. Like that's why, that's why some people I think hate, you know, the Confederate flag or something like that, right? Which is a symbol of hate. It's a symbol of slavery. It's all these things. But taking it outside of its racist context, it's hated because it's a symbol of, heritage right you know that saying heritage not hate it's a it's, it's a it's a big thing and i don't want to get into like the racist connotations of this or anything like that i'm just saying that like that like the american flag forget the confederate flag the american flag is shit on all the time and that's like for such a young country that's the one piece of heritage that we have i don't want to get too far off the track here but you see what I'm saying. You need something there. I do see what you're saying. I and and look, there, uh, there are a whole bunch of interesting. I and if I don't connect all these dots, uh, I gave so you a lot I, of dots. I gave you like I, fifteen I will, dots. I will do them dimensionally, if not sequentially. Mm -hmm. I don't like sequence so much. Uh, that's just sequence is just an illusion. Uh, well, first of all, I think the flag thing is, is very interesting because you can you don't even have to mention the word symbolism or symbol because that's what a flag is so much so that it's very difficult. It's very difficult to see a flag. In, in the sense of, well, let's say the American flag to be very focused it's very hard to see that independently of the conceptual frame of symbol mm -hmm. it it almost its materiality almost disappears 
-hmm. And that's a very peculiar feeling. And it, there are a few other examples of, of symbols that, that have that kind of, I don't know if power is quite the right word, but have those characteristics. But I think what you could say is that one of the reasons why our era and the momentarians are so fixated and so influenced by symbolism is because that is the architectural level that they can function on and have some capability of, of really responding to and manipulating. We've paid, I think, as a culture, an enormous price for our sophistication with symbols and codes, you know, and I think we've moved farther and further both from the material world of competence, craftsmanship, endurance, the the quality yeah. goes in before the name goes on. And I think that's ooh, you know, ooh, say that one more time. The quality goes in before the name goes on. I gotta yeah, that's an old zenith. Uh, slogan and that was a really well-made advertising slogan it it was very very durable um and it's a beautiful beautiful idea um and and, and the name goes on has two meanings right like it's the name as in the stamp but yeah. goes on as in in perpetuity yeah. right yeah as in yeah it's exactly so i think that there's more there about I think we've hit on something really, really important that somehow the the failure and the the exhaustion, let's say, within the world of, of literal architecture of our time is not only a reflection of the zeitgeist, it's a key influencing factor. It mm -hmm, sets mm -hmm. up a, a, a very peculiar kind of focal point. Uh for a perspective that is then well, almost automatically, uh, maybe not automatically nihilistic, but it gets there very quickly. It's mm -hmm. certainly on the depressive scale, you know, and you can see these minor sort of, well, not they're not minor, but depression, anxiety. You can see why those are almost ambient, ubiquitous problems, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you could see it and go, well, duh. Mm -hmm. uh, yet that's the, the strangeness of this is that the very nature of the problem and the cognitive dissonance means you hit that and it's like running into a wall. You just can't accept mm -hmm. it because it's too fundamental. You know, we say, yes, it's the man-made or human-made world, but well, that's pretty important, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to stop for the main the main part of the show. So we're going to go to the dome. Let's go to the dome. Oh. Let's David's go to dome. the dome. Ba, ba, David's, ba, ba. dome. David's dome. All right. Well... Are you ready for the dome? <laughs> oh, okay, it is. All right, cool. So I'll describe 
the interior and the exterior of the house first. Of course, being me, it is going to be a Pueblo Adobe style house. Okay. Off rip. It's also, I'm just including everything I like here. So it's going to be a split level. I love split level houses. I think they're so great. <laughs> and it is going to have a sunken living room. Yeah. Oh, baby. Let's go. Sunken yeah. living room. Okay. Okay. So it will have a, uh, because it is split level, it will also have what's called a clerestory. Are you familiar with this term? Yeah. Uh -huh. It's the it's the vertical windows that kind of section those two pieces together, right? So it'll be it'll have some cool uh, sort of modern designs with that. I very specifically wanted to have uh, what are called vigas, which is a pueblo style oak uh, ceiling beam in them, which have a kind of imposing figure when you walk into a room, right? It feels like this. This roof is held up by something. Um, I, too, which is kind of solid and earthy and strong. Yeah, yeah. You picture it as being like black, you know, like a dark color, those Vegas. But uh, I wanted to have a Kiba as well, which is a fire pit meeting place, right? Uh, maybe not in the main body of the house, but but somewhere because you need a meeting place. Every building needs a meeting place. The house I live in right now has the living room, and that's the meeting place. As a matter of fact, Rios and I had a conversation tonight about finances and our future and things like that, and we did it unconsciously sitting by the fireplace. Interesting how that happens, right? Good choice. Uh, uh, I want it to be, um, I want it to have, so in New Mexican architecture, it's called a bosque, which is uh, putting it next to a kind of a, a floodplain with some woodlands on it, right? Nice. How, nice. However far that globe goes, we'll, we'll, we'll have that kind of floodplain uh, forest dichotomy going on. Um, and so I want to have, I, I kind of, this is a very, this is a shitty sketch, but I drew a okay. kind of like, I like that kind of outer gate with these pillars going on here. And um, there's a, a, a structure called a Zagwan, which is where you walk in and uh, from the outside to the inside, that kind of, it's not a, the, we have the idea of the foyer, right? Or the foyer. Yeah. Um but in this kind of architecture, it's more of a tunnel that you move through, right? And you would think about buildings in terms of their tunnels. Um, so in this house, uh, Gus and I would have a lot of spare parts to cars and electronics and things of that nature. Um, just for the sake of this, not this doesn't say anything about my deeper psychology, but because this is in... Uh, an imaginative challenge. I'm not thinking about what his mother would do. It's no sh shade on her. It's just kind of where I'm at. Like this is just yeah. it's just me and you him. Gotta, you've you've had to deal with enough. No, no, I think yeah. that's that's understood. Yeah. 
so he and I would learn how to build things in this. We would have our, our sunken pit. We'd have this great, you know, with the Vegas coming down and the, and the great Adobe walls that, you know, when you make something from Adobe, you kind of feel the history without the history because it's all that kind of clay and mud. And so, you know, one day perhaps after building guitar pedals and bicycles and ersatz, you know, cathode ray tube televisions, I make it out of there. And I meet the creator of this place and I ask him like, why, why did you put us here? Like, what's the, what's the point? Uh, he would tell me, uh, I just wanted to see what you'd learn on your own. Wow. Okay. 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 I think you, I think you took a nice exit with your twilight zone. Uh, oh, Henry ending. And for people who are wondering about that reference, the one I'm thinking of, there, there are a couple of, of original twilight zones that have this idea, but a couple, uh, are out at a big party and get very drunk and they wake up hungover and very confused. And they're in this very strange small town and they hear this weird laughter somewhere. And eventually they, they find out they've been abducted by aliens who are giants and they're the playthings of a little girl. So uh, I thought that was really lovely. And I could, I thought that the design choice of, the Pueblo influenced house uh, coming out of your your uh, trip to New Mexico and just that just the the I, I, that's such a beautiful architectural form. It's one of the you know it's so it's distinctly American uh, you know to a certain part of America, but it works beautifully. And yet I could also see it within the aesthetic of the snow domes, you know. There was something, and I think that's a weird connection because some people will think snow domes a kind of kitschy sort of thing. And I don't think that's fair. I think if you see through that aesthetic to something a little bit deeper, what you what I think of is a kind of design coherence of some kind and a tonal mood quality of optimism. And I think that what you've chosen is exactly that without being saccharine or overstated in any way. And the, uh, the ending reveal um, was tastefully in, in resonance with that too. So yeah, good job. Cool. Yeah. Glad you That's liked all. it. That was, that was. I really, I, I'll let listeners in on something here, which is that low key i feel like in another life if i'd had a bit more skill with a pen i would have just been an architect <laughs> i would have just drawn things to build but I, I i i don't have that 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 skill so i'm left to just imagine and hope that other people can do it it's like a person who can't write but wants a good novel please somebody build something for me because I have, I have these ideas and I have a friend, I have a, a pretty close friend who's an architect and uh, sometimes we'll get together and I'll just, you know, there are all these utilitarian, like functional 
things that won't work with what I'm saying, but I just want somebody who can make a cool place where I can tell them something and they can say, oh, okay, I, I have the geometrical knowledge to make that work, but it's a constant struggle. Well, it really, and it, it relates to so many other struggles. I certainly, I think every every kind of creative struggle there can be because it is the ultimate question of where to start, you know, what's the middle point? Where's the, you know, the deep structural ideas come from the structure of architecture, you know? And there are so many things that, that, that it relates to and other creative decision-making work, investment of time and, and effort and, and, real sweat sometimes, but also hope and expectation. And then there's the question of, well, just how do you decide what, finally, what kind of style, for instance? Mm -hmm. Like I often, this often, I know I just think to myself, you know, if so, you know, the, the fantasy of like, well, what if you had Bill Gates type money, what would you do? Mm -hmm. And I start going down one path and I think, oh, but I really like this sort of thing. And I had that fantasy where I have like uh, a mobile home, like an Airstream travel, you know, trailer, but it opens up to another dimension. And I've got 50 million different kinds of places. So I can just go to room to room to room. Mm -hmm. and I never have to worry about the coherence of it all. And then I think it's exactly that kind of thinking that creates really weird houses like the Hearst Castle. Mm -hmm. I, I, <laughs> I did a tour. The last time I did a tour, I did mm -hmm. that on Mescaline. It was it was really oh, Jesus man. But think of like the Winchester Mystery House. Have you heard? Yeah, of you could do the Winchester Mystery House, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The staircases that go nowhere, and you know all these different rooms. There was like an occult aspect to that, right? She was. Yes. Yeah. Was, I mean. Yeah. And honestly, the all of the legends and sort of the idea of it, like if we did, if we could do an episode just talking about, it, that's a lot more interesting than what the house uh, is, mm -hmm. and sort of mm -hmm. what it's well, oh, certainly what it's become because the context of that whole area is now the awfulness to me of of the Silicon Valley money and the density of, mm. of the California. It's just, it's not as bad as what's happening to Phoenix, but it's pretty bad. It's mm -hmm. pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And it oh, yeah. Phoenix, Phoenix is my least favorite city in America. Oh, actually, I, it's, it, it's, and it has, so the Phoenix botanical gardens are beautiful. I love the, the, I, I visited there and I think it's great. But the city of Phoenix, however, New Mexico is such an interesting juxtaposition, right, of the best and worst cities in America. Because Phoenix is one of the worst, and I think Santa Fe is one of the best. I think Santa Fe has a lot going for it. Yeah, it does. It's surprising that the that the prison is there, which is you know, but that's not because it's it's a state prison. But Santa Fe is really beautiful. I don't think you'd say the same though about Albuquerque, though. What about Albuquerque? I mean, wouldn't you say that Albuquerque is just kind of an impoverished phoenix? No, 
No. You think Albuquerque's cool? I might be missing something. No, 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 no. I, I have a lot of love for Albuquerque. I think Albuquerque, well, I've been to, <laughs> I'll qualify this with saying I've been to Albuquerque once, but I, I found it pretty enchanting, actually. Where I actually, I, well, was, I, I have to, I, I remember, though, that you were living in El Paso for a while. Yeah. So right. I think relative, yes, you're right. <laughs> relative to El Paso. <laughs> yeah, is an enchanted El Paso. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah that's yeah. fair enough. It had a lot going for it. It had some it had some beautiful twisty highways and uh it felt very leveled as a city. Uh I would have to spend more time in it, but I will say solidly that like my 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 two towns in new mexico or taos and santa fe those two are well those are those are beautiful towns and did you know i looked up because i was with rios you know we're playing this fantasy game where we're looking up like where are we gonna live and so i looked up taos and did you know that taos according to this website that i went to has one of the worst crime rates in america i wouldn't have known I was walking down the street in Taos. I, I, I went to a, the only thing that happened was I went to a gas station and two tweakers with weird haircuts. Uh, they asked me like, Hey man, what's your favorite band? I'm from Lawton, Oklahoma, the home of the tweakers. Number eight on the, on the crime. Like I could, I talked to these dudes. I was like, Oh, I like da da da. And then we had a conversation but I read that and I thought that wasn't my reading of Taos at all. I didn't see it as a dangerous place. I saw it as a really cool place. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, I think there are different types of white people, is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. They're the white people who are scared of everything, and then there, and then, and then there, and then there are us, right? <laughs> And the people who are scared, the white people who are scared of everything make these websites that tell you about the crime statistics. Well, it's such a mixed up, crazy time in America that it really is true that you you don't know who's out there and and what's up. But there is something, you know, you just made me think about something just psychologically. And I don't have any explanation or defense for this whatsoever. But I, it's just the way it is. You know, okay, here I am living on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's no question that Vegas has some very hardcore problems. We've got some really hardcore prisons in the state of Nevada. There are a lot of weird people out here. There's no, and there are weird people just all over, but you know, but when I'm out and about like exploring often on my own, usually on my own, you know, I never get that sense of anxiety or yellow alert moving up a notch mm-hmm, mm-hmm, i just mm-hmm. fundamentally don't get it right and i'll give you a really good example of i was i was driving you know because you can be out on the two lanes and then no one around mm-hmm. and this was last year 
was coming out of COVID, but I was driving and I hadn't seen anybody. There's no one around and there's no cell phone connection Mm -hmm. there. And there's a car pulled off to the side of the road and one dude's up on the hill having a piss. And there are three others at least visible in and, and, and one outside the car smoking. The car's broken down, okay? It's mm-hmm. obvious the hood's up. These guys are serious looking black dudes. Mm-hmm. There are at least four of them. And one waves, you know, you know, can we get a ride? Well, now I think a lot of people, most people would not have stopped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did stop. And I just didn't feel anxious. I just can't explain it any other way. And I, yeah. the, the first question I said, look, you know, do you have any weapons? Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy said, yeah, we, we do. And he didn't know that he was going to say that. Mm-hmm. It was partly just because I just said it. So, and I said, where do you know? And they gave me an address of where they, they want to go. Because I said, you know, we're not going to get any phone reception. And it was totally cool. I mean, it was, it, it could have been really bad. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, mm-hmm. I, I, I admit, I would not have stopped, I think, if I had uh, like a girlfriend with me. I wouldn't have. Right, honestly, right, right. Wouldn't. Uh, or anyone else, but because it was just me, I just just did. But the point is, I just don't have that vibe. Whereas I could tell you many, many places, but but Australia is a very good correlation. I had that feeling a lot there. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling that it was that if somebody showed up, like if you're out sort of at a picnic, you know, with a partner, wife, girlfriend, and you're in a remote spot and someone else shows up my feeling more often than not would have been tension and, and alertness Oh, and not so much here in the land of guns and all this sort of stuff. I don't know why. Yeah. No, I feel that. I feel that I have never been to Australia and all the countries that I've been to have been kind of the child safety version of america <laughs> so europe there's no fear in europe there's no fear in korea there's no fear in you know like going to stonehenge or like even when you're around people who you maybe should be afraid of i think growing up in america makes you less afraid but it's interesting the places that i go to that do instill uh, that kind of fear in me which is still i mean it's still just very specific neighborhoods and very specific places. But if I don't feel it, then I feel like I'm okay. And I would have probably done the same thing as you, not with obviously not with Rios or Gus in the car or whatever, but you know, if I was driving past on my own and saw some black dudes broken down, I'd stop. The interesting thing about that, when I reflect on it and sort of link it into our, discussions about the influence of architecture is that out on that desert highway everybody's out of context you could say the black guys are more out of context than a white person but that doesn't really hold up very long you know no one's going to feel 
you know, whereas I think that when, when oftentimes where the fear starts often is in the architecture. Mm. I mean, think about it, you know, from a filmmaking point of view, you can create an enormous sense of ominous and, and maybe even stronger than that, just by, you know, a certain kind of alley, you know, yeah. or and, lost highway that, that condo. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the alien and alienation can be constructed. I mean, think how many buildings seem to be designed with alienation in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas you look at like the art deco style of, of buildings all around the world, but like Miami, it looks like it's designed to have fun. So yeah. you do. I mean, the only reason, you know, those environments have trouble is when they're not looked after and they and they go into decline. New uh, York City looks like keep walking. Los yeah. Angeles looks like what's behind door number one. Anytime I'm driving through Los Angeles, it always looks like it's it's just giving me a peek, you know, until you get to the part that you're supposed to see. And then it it opens up. And I think that's a lot of, you know, those, uh, those barrier walls for neighborhoods off the highway where it's like a sound barrier, like, but I feel like when you're driving in, in Los Angeles, there's a lot of mystery, like what's going on behind those walls? Like, what are people doing? You know? And you see like hints of, of, of telephone wires and, and lights. And, and there's this idea that there's always this kind of neighborhood just just over the over the wall but i love i love la for that for its sense of uh mystery i guess it just always seems like i want to just go through those streets i want to take every exit and look at those neighborhoods it's a it's an amazing city for from an architectural point of view and what that how that influences culture and, and it's been supported of course by a great car culture too that it you it can almost be forgiven all its its lack of taste in many instances mm-hmm. and <laughs> it's uh, I mean its impact on the environment its impact on the air its impact on American and therefore global culture, you know, because of, of the film and, and music industries. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I still think there is something, uh, but part of what I think of when I think of what, what gives it, uh, it, it it's the mythos mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. culture, but it is things like the architecture, you know, the, from mm-hmm. the old Spanish days through John Lautner, you know, it's mm-hmm. there, there mm-hmm. are some interesting styles there that really have some like a Spanish colonial revival house is, you know, pretty typical in many, many and some on grand scales and some not. Now, that may not be to everyone's taste, but it's impossible to, you know, to park your car hopefully like a nice, maybe like a Thunderbird out, in, you know, under a palm tree and walk up to, you know, one of those places and not feel like, yeah, there's a real sense of location. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 It centers you. It, it puts you in place. Um, I, I think to maybe round this up for this episode is that one of the, you know, if identity and confusion 
Uh, and, and sometimes madness about identity is a hallmark of our time. It starts because of, of, of confusion, doubt about location. Mm. You know, we don't know who we are because we don't know where we are. And yeah, you know, anybody who begins to spout off about, well, I am, a, you know, I'm not even going to try. You know what I'm I'm trying to say? It's yeah. one of these people who has all these like identification markers. It might be good to to say, okay, okay, yeah, no, it's great, it's great, it's great. Uh, can you for me describe your neighborhood in detail? One step out, just just come outside of that box. Like, where do you live? What does it look like? What does your day-to-day life look like? Whether they can do that or not will be very telling. Well, and and very therapeutic if they give themselves a chance to enrich those skills because th- that can be learned and that can be deprogrammed away from it. I'm, I, I'm convinced that it is possible to effectively break out of the boxes by by kind of not doing so you know the key is not the key as as john really said you really have to to envision an entirely different frame but you do that with that optimistic sense of being able to do that and to examine simple aspects of your immediate interior you know, starting within, but looking at the syntax of your rooms, we can only change so much about, you know, the architecture, because most of us don't move into a purpose-built home that we've designed or whatever. We adapt. And that could be really, you know, that's a good thing, because we don't have to invent everything over, you know. Mm -hmm. And so many people think, well, adapt, you know, they would love something just completely from scratch. I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of confusion and, and uncertainty and, and difficulty getting there. And when you, you meet people doing that, they're often just so lost in decision-making, they go nuts, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and it just, it's too much. Uh, but to, to be able to think you can get out of the box through the physicality of, of, you know, of working with things, dealing with structure, trying to make things more physical, trying to make the invisible more visible. Mm-hmm. What artists are doing all the time. Okay, all right. Well, uh, that kind of, in a way, I think summarizes the tool, but I'll give a very specific sort of, but it's related exactly to that. I think that that's been said well. Uh, On top of my studio shed, there's no power to it. It's very humble, uh, very cold in the winter, hot in the the summer, but there is a ventilator cap on it. It has one of those chef's hat rotating things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting out there and I, it was hearing it turn in the wind and i thought i really want to record that sound i really really want that sound so i get up on my ladder you know it's not a big roof it's not it's, it's a pretty small 
it's a you know tool shed really and i thought there's just no way to get a recording of the cap the friction of that metal and not getting the wind that was making it turn mm-hmm. and i thought oh okay this is like every, this is like wanting your cake and eat it too no that's not quite the right metaphor and i was trying to work out this is the core metaphoric crisis we want x result but we don't want the condition of x so mm-hmm. I somehow mm-hmm. want the thing turning, but I don't want the thing that is making it turn. So mm-hmm. I've built in a, a permanent frustration that I can't escape from. So here's the tool. I made recordings anyway. And I, when I played them back, the wind was fucking up the sound that I really wanted to hear but I slowed it way down and I got a sound that I hadn't heard before. That was so much cooler. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my tool. Hell yeah. And here's the tip very briefly. Uh, I've got a little mini Moog theremin and that's a very strange, I mean, I think the idea of playing an instrument you don't touch is odd, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I was playing it, and I, it is. It takes a lot of, of efforts. I mean, it's just, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. But I left it on. And I was on the other side of the room. And I was actually going back to my writing. I was really working on my, and I, I was communicated to. Mm-hmm you know, in this really subtle sort of way. So my tip is, if you have a theremin, leave it on. (laughs) If you don't have one, try to think about what that metaphorically might mean. Because Mm -hmm. it brought a new presence to the room and to my work. I felt collaborated with I felt a little bit sort of every once in a while I'd remember it or it would make a new sound. And I feel I'd get, it was a very strange mixture of, you know, another presence, another mm-hmm. kind of presence and a whole different frame for what presence means that went from being kind of good and to being kind of, ooh, you know, it's, <laughs> it was weird. It was weird. But I recommend it. You, we need that other input. It was like the sound of the hidden observers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, in terms of dreams, I I quit Twitter about two weeks ago, and, and I had my better. I've been sleeping better, but I had my first. Twitter anxiety dream. Oh, fantastic. Lay it on us. Oh, and so, it, oh right. you, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Like none of the, the players in any of this makes sense, but it was this uh, sort of amalgam enhancement of the, the, of the canceling. I was getting canceled in my dream. Of course. And the canceling didn't make any sense. I kept, I would go from person to person and say like, what exactly did I do? And the answer was always like, oh, 
How, wait, how do you not know? The thing with the cats? Or, <laughs> you know, that incident at the fountain? Or, you know, well, the police were called. All these things, right? And I just like, by the end of it, I the people who I knew were denouncing me in public right they were saying all these kind of things and i woke up oh, oh, and i looked around and i felt canceled for about a day after that dream happened even though nothing legitimately canceled me look i think we should leave that as our dream sequence this time because Mine was going to go off into what I'd like to suggest might be a good topic for next time, which builds on what we've been talking about, because you brought a lot of things into focus for me. I'd like to look at how the how buildings uh, work in our dream lives, mm-hmm. uh, because that's that's what mine will, and that's a good sort of takeoff point for next time. But we know sort of that that there are theories that buildings, and oftentimes that's that's a confusion between an actual discrete material uh, structure and a context and a time in one's life, because that's often what it's. So it's it's got to be, you know, it's not just the house; it's your whole dome. Going back to the the snow dome thing, but the building and and the body the relationship between body and building in our dream lives and how that relates to metaphor. If we did a little triangle there, so body, building, building, and metaphor, and dream is sort of the medium between them. I think that might be an interesting place to take off for next time. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. All right, cool. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Lost Explorers. Uh, it's my favorite so far. <laughs> but uh, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, thanks everyone. Uh, and I'll try out more uh, names for the ensemble too. But you can, if anybody has any thoughts on psychedelic frogfish, I'm you know, completely open for suggestions. Take care, everyone.